Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Well, it's been pretty nice summer around here these days. Had a little too much rain in the spring, not enough the last month or so. But on the whole, the weather has been pretty great. But almost every big landmass on the planet has had a spot that has exploded with deadly record-breaking weather this summer. A stifling heat wave is blanketing Europe this weekend. In the Netherlands, officials had to close some roadways because the intense heat melted the asphalt. In Lisbon, Portugal, the mercury peaked at 111 degrees. And in Frankfurt, Germany, the thermometer reached 97. Japan is experiencing a record-breaking heat wave, which officials say contributed to the death of 65 people last week. More than 30,000 people were admitted to hospitals suffering from heat exhaustion. At least 60 people have been killed and more than 100 injured in the worst wildfires to hit Greece in more than a decade. The governor of California and the president declaring a state of emergency. Authorities warning residents in Redding to, quote, get out with your life. You cannot predict where this fire is going next. The unstoppable car fire torching over 80,000 acres, taking down over 530 structures and putting almost 5,000 more at risk. With me to talk about climate change and the weather is Howard Lerner, president and executive director of the Environmental Law Policy Center. Thanks for joining us, Howard. Glad to join you, Jerome. And David Wallace-Wells. He's deputy editor for New York Magazine. And his last two articles on climate are California's record-breaking fire isn't the week's worst climate news and how did the end of the world become old news? Last year, his landmark article, The Uninhabitable Earth, about the worst-case climate scenarios sparked a broad conversation about how to talk about climate change and think about climate change. Thanks for joining us, David Wallace-Wells. Pleasure to be here. I also want to invite listeners to uh, chime in on the conversation. If you have been to a place that was having enormous impact of climate-related weather this summer or have a uh, problem about how climate change is talked about in the media, give us a call at 312-923-9239 and join the conversation. The number is 312-923-9239. David, I wanted to start with you, and your work is interesting, and you've taken a different approach on climate. You're taking a very uh, serious uh, look at it and wondering why there isn't more direct connection in the media between the weather and the climate and why we aren't uh, presenting a, a, a more vivid account of what is possible in the future. Um, what has what has this summer's weather said to you about where we're at here? Well, uh, I think the big, the first big lesson is just that we're we're in sort of bad shape as a planet. I mean, we've never seen these kinds of global heat waves um, before. Um, it's really an unprecedented experience, and and you know, in many different cities, um, dozens of people or more have died of of heat effects. Um, in addition to the the horrible wildfires in California and in Greece, um, and actually in the Arctic Circle in Northern Europe. Um, so just on a very baseline where the climate is now, things are things are quite scary. Um, on a kind of climate messaging um, front, I think there's a way in which this is useful in the sense that it's waking the public up to um, just how bad things have gotten. And also um, to many of the effects beyond sea level rise and Arctic ice melts um, that climate change represents. I think for the last decade or two, even people who were quite concerned about climate change um, because of the way the media spoke about it would probably 
um, think that the, the real risks were, were really on the coastline about sea level. And we're seeing now in a kind of unmistakable way on the news all of the um, impacts that climate change can have no matter where you are on the planet, um, from agricultural effects to wildfires um, and, and down the line. Um, it's also true, as you, as you suggested, that um, you know, the coverage of this summer's events have not been um, – you know, has not been nearly as explicit about the climate causes um, as someone like me would like to see. Uh, there was a great um, survey that Media Matters did of 127 segments on American network news over the course of a week-long um, heat wave in July, only one of which mentioned climate as an underlying factor. And to me, that's really dispiriting because you often hear um, from producers, I'm an editor, I, you know, I'm I, from editors, that climate change is... Um, is not something that people are all that interested in hearing about or, or reading about. But these producers and editors were obviously um, focused on the effects enough to put those segments on the air. Um, and you'd think then they would want to connect the dots and tell the much um, grander, scarier, scarier story about the way that climate change is transforming the planet before our very eyes. You, you, you know have what? a kind of um, built, built, sorry, it's just to finish. We have a kind of built in bias or, um, received wisdom that climate change unfolds over many decades and even many generations. And, and while that's the case, it's also true that um, things are changing much more quickly than uh, most people would have predicted until a few years ago. And I think much more than the public really appreciates. You know, I was reading uh, New Republic and Emily Atkin had an article about the media's failure to connect the docs on climate change. And she talked about uh, NPR and talked to the NPR science editor who uh, said that, you know, they don't really want to mention climate change during every news blurb on, you know, the wildfires in Greece or the wildfires in uh, Florida or the floods in Japan. Uh, But um, they want to talk to a climate scientist and, you know, and then they can mention the connection to climate change. And they did this on a piece on Sunday. They talked about climate and all the weather events. Um, But is that not good enough is I mean should we be mentioning climate every time that there is a uh, weather related thing that is climate related I mean I, I think I would like to see that yeah <laughs> um, my 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 sense is in general you know it's great to have more scientists on the air talking about this issue um, and if you can get um, if you can get interesting guests on who, who are willing to talk about the connection between climate and um, the weather events that we're seeing so much the better. I certainly wouldn't want to, um, I would never object to a, um, a producer or an editor sort of getting the voice of a scientist, um, in, into the segment or story. Um, my perspective on that though, is that scientists are more reluctant than they should be to connect these dots. So they often say, you know, we, we really don't want to attribute, um, the cause of this wildfire or this heat wave to climate change, because we know from our historical record that, um, you know, many factors, and, and also just from the science, many factors go into each of these events, and um, climate change is only one of them. Um, it may have made this event more likely, but it's not the cause. And while that's true in a kind of academic technical sense, um, I think it sort of misses the point in terms of um, the sort of vernacular audience for this kinds of this kind of research, which is to say that. If um, climate change has made a hurricane three times more likely or wildfires twice as likely um, or a, you know, a heat wave, a deadly heat wave four times as likely, um, 
it doesn't make much sense to me to um, to be so careful about attributing cause. We're all adults. We all understand that um, as with the economy, as with you know culture, so many features of our modern life, um, there are many, many causes that go into any event. But climate is unmistakably a factor driving up the number of events that we're seeing and making them more um, more deadly in the case of those that are deadly and more expansive and damaging in the case of um, those events that are just um, sort of damaging property and driving people from their homes. And I think we should be, um, you know, as journalists and I think, you know, um, I think scientists too should be honest with um, the audience, the public about exactly how much worse climate change is making all of the effects and to me, that's the big story of a wildfire. Um, there is a human tragedy in each of them. There's a human tragedy in a heat wave, especially when people die. But um, when we're thinking about the broader narratives that these events are telling us, the, um, what they're showing about the way the planet is changing, climate change is that big story. So in almost all cases, personally, I would want to see um, yeah, a discussion, further discussion, a more detailed discussion of exactly how each event fits into this um, broader story of how the, the planet is getting warmer. And as it's getting warmer, it's getting much more dangerous for all of us. I'm talking with David Wallace-Wells from New York Magazine, and we're discussing climate change coverage. Uh, also with us is Howard Lerner, President and Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center. And we're taking a few phone calls today. If you have some thoughts on climate coverage and climate change and have seen a few things this summer that uh, amaze you, give us a call at 312-923-9239. Howard, um, I wanted to make a policy connection here. Um, if we were to really be blunt and be talking about how really harsh the climate situation is, um, would we have to do policy things that uh, we, we are certainly not doing in this country right now? I mean, I, I was reading about the things that the French do in uh, the heat wave, and there were three cities that banned the most polluting cars from the road because of um, because of ozone issues, Paris and Strasbourg uh, banned vehicles that were 12 years and older. Uh, in Lyon, only cars with clean air stickers are allowed. There, there's a level of uh, public policy implication if we really take in what's really going on with climate change. And that, Jerome, is David's central point. We have to be realistic about we're in a new world here. You know, when there's a fire, if it was caused by arson, the news media would report on the story of who was the arsonist who caused the fire. When sound science and the facts tell us that climate change is exacerbating wildfires, the media shouldn't shy away from saying that's the reality. But we need to then step beyond just mourning. We need to talk about solutions. You know, when it comes to policy, you know, as Joe Hill famously said, don't mourn, organize, and I'll add, litigate, innovate, and advocate. And what we're seeing is it's not business as usual anymore. And whether it's the cities in France or what's happening with accelerating clean energy, solar energy and wind power here in Illinois that backs out coal plants, we can't treat this as business as usual. We need to seize the policy levers. And when the federal government steps back, we need the states and cities to be stepping up with innovative plans. So we've seen the Trump administration, as you're indicating, Jerome, step back when it comes to the federal clean car standards. The transportation sector is becoming larger than the energy sector on greenhouse gases. 
But the Trump administration is going backwards, and there's a lot of pushback coming from the some elements of the auto industry, the UAW, which is saying that the Trump administration's policies will cost 60,000 jobs in the United States. We don't want to give away our technological leadership. So some of this is getting the policies right. Uh, you can look at ELPC.org, Clean Cars, for some action steps that you can take. But also we're seeing cities in Europe and here in the United States saying, what can we step up and do? And when the going gets tough, the tough get going and begin to do some of the innovative things you just described, Jerome. Let's go to the phones and take a few phone calls here. Uh, Bill, you're on WBEZ. Uh, thank you. Appreciate the discussion here today. Um, to what extent do non-human factors or have non-human factors contributed to the the increase in climate change? What do you mean by non-human factors? Uh, so, for example, is there has there been uh, over a period of time an increase in solar activity? Is there any um, astrological explanation for some of the change, or or can we? reasonably attribute most of this to the rise in greenhouse gases and other human-related activities. Uh, David, we hear a lot about uh, what is human-related and not human-related. Uh, what is your idea about that? Well, I think um, there are some variations in climate patterns that are um, come from other sources, such as solar variation. But um, the warming that we've seen over the planet, uh, across the planet over the last um, 50 years or so, I think is unmistakably primarily attributed attributable to the increase in greenhouse gases, which is a result of um, industrialization and, to a lesser extent, um, changes in agriculture and other human um, you know, we think other human factors. We're, we th we often think of human um, contributions as being um, entirely through industry, energy, and transportation. But um, there are many many other contributors um, having to do with the way that we um, cultivate and you know cultivate plants and um, and also sort of natural climate feedback systems that we are only tangentially related to. But um, the truth is that everything that happens on this planet now has a human fingerprint and um, even things like the changing circulatory patterns of the ocean, which have some effect on climate change, um, are driven in some significant degree um, by human action. So while there are some external contributions, they are, I would say, the consensus is quite small compared to the effect that human activity in all its forms has had uh, on the health and temperature of the planet. Why do you think we get so hung? Yeah, Howard, go ahead. Let me just be more blunt and to the point. The scientific debate <laughs> on that, your listener, is over. The, the leading scientists of the world have come together and they've said human activities are the predominant principal cause of climate change. Well, why do you think we that get so hung up on this? If, 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 if everybody has said that for so long, why do we still hear that question in, in the public's mind? Do, do they just not want to face the fact that we've got to change our behavior? Or do they seriously think that, um, you know, the science is up for grabs? Well, I think it's really two things. And let me assume good faith of the listener who's calling in with a question. One, you know, people don't want to take 100% responsibility, okay? You know, you want to say maybe there's something else going on. 
But there's also a very well-organized political force in this country, be it the Bob Murrays and the Peabody's in the coal industry, who, let's face it, they are funding sciences. They are trying to undermine what is, as David referred to, the strong consensus view among American scientists and scientists around the world. That debate is over. As a reality is that human activities are the predominant, dominant cause of climate change. And that's what we can do something about. So the importance here is recognizing, and that's not a belief, that's not an idea, that's a scientific fact. So what we need to do then is recognize the factual reality and take action to do something about it. And as the New York Times piece pointed out um, a week or two ago, the failure to do that in the 70s and the early 80s has exacerbated the problem. So let's recognize the reality. Let's recognize where the scientific debate is. It's ended. It's predominantly human cause. And let's see what we can do principally in the energy and the transportation sector here in the Midwest that are responsible for about 75 to 80 percent of greenhouse gases, innovate better technologies, move to cleaner technologies, change our practices in cities like a number of cities you mentioned Jerome are experimenting in and change the course here bend the arc make a difference I'm talking with Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center and David Wells Wallace Wells he's deputy editor for New York Magazine we're talking about climate change and the weather we've seen this summer and we'll take a few more phone calls after the break at 312-923-9239 I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking about climate change and the weather with Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center and David Wallace-Wells from New York Magazine. We're taking a few phone calls, and Nick is with us. He has some thoughts on media coverage of climate change. Hi, Nick. Hi, Jerome. Um, what I'd like you guys to consider and maybe speak to is how the corporatization of the media, including NPR, and just capitalism itself um, affects the discussion on climate change. Um, David Wallace-Wells, do you have some thoughts on that? I, I know uh, Naomi Klein had a piece in The Intercept recently, which she underlined her her main thesis that um, capitalism and the neoliberalism is what really is driving climate change and you know, criticized the New York Times piece Howard was referring to earlier for saying, well, it's human nature to not – not do anything about climate change. We just want to naturally uh, kind of ignore it. Um, what, what, did, what do you think about uh, the economic factors here? Well, to take the sort of narrow version of the question first, um, personally, I think that the sort of corporate influence on, on the media coverage is quite limited. I, I, I see much more um, wariness of covering climate for reasons of audience and traffic and ratings um, which you know many many people in positions to assign stories feel are going to be bad and sort of stay away from. Although I would say, um, in my own experience, well, is, isn't I that technically some, the, like the corporate? Isn't that about profits? Then, like, oh my gosh, we're going to drive away audience. We're going to deny our profits. That is the corporatization. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, th- I I sort of took the question to mean more about the influence of um, 
advertising through uh, from fossil fuel companies um, and that sort of thing. But um, to your point, yeah, I mean, the business of media is a business. But I would say, um, you know, from my own experience and from the experience of people I, I know who've written about climate in engaging ways, um, that these can be actually quite explosively successful stories, uh, which reach much bigger audiences than the publications in which they're published tend to reach. So um, there is a sort of, a, from my mind, closed-minded idea of what climate storytelling can be. And as a result, people in the position to assign stories um, are often reluctant to do them because they think they'll be dutiful and uninspiring and unengaging. On the, on the sort of much broader question, um, I have great admiration and sympathy for for Naomi Klein and her piece and also her work on, on climate change generally. I think, um, I think it's sort of hard to look at the issue without seeing a, you know, industrial capitalism as a major, major driving force of the problem. I think in particular, the way that, um, oil companies have captured, um, you have acquired so much political power and so much, um, insulation from political pressure, um, has been really damaging, especially in the United States, where they funded these massive denial campaigns. Building BEZ is supported um, by the Elmhurst. But also, um, you know, all around the world, where they continue to um, pollute the environment in very dramatic ways without much, um, you know, without much uh, blowback. So I think, um, you know, I, I personally, I, I would, I have a um, more of a neoliberal view of things than I think uh, Naomi Klein does, and I think that there is a a way to separate m- much of what we think of as modern capitalism from the um, forces of especially fossil driven capitalism that are poisoning our planet. But, um, you know, I, I sympathize with those who see them as harder to entangle than that. Howard Lerner, do you have some thoughts on corporatization and capitalism driving climate change? Well, certainly we're seeing both a monopolization of some elements of the media, but we're also seeing a more democratic media with a small d, as there are many more channels for people to get their news. You go back 20 years ago, people in Chicago got their news from channels 2, 5, 7, and 9, and maybe 11 in the evening, from you know public radio and a couple of radio stations, and two newspapers in town, maybe three. Now there are many different ways that people get their information. So that's sort of a counter trend to the good point that David's making. The other, though, is that as President Obama has pointed out, we are very tribal in terms of how we look at media. And the fact is, it used to be in the Chicago metropolitan area, we all pretty much got our media from the same place, and we had good things to talk about with each other. Now, if you have certain views, you're getting it from uh, Rachel Maddow. If you have certain different views, you're getting it from Fox. And if you have you know, more like Rachel's views, you go to Chris Hayes. People aren't talking with each other as much. And that means they're getting on climate change, you know, very tunneled view of the issues. We're going to take a few phone calls here. Let's go to Julia. Uh, you're on WBEZ. Hi, yes. Um, I used to live in Colorado and moved to Chicago about six years ago. And I went back for a visit this summer just uh, last week. And I was just uh, very struck by what I think is the effects of climate change on so many parts of the state. I drove all around. I saw uh, the pine bark beetle, brown mountain passes that used to be green. I saw um, at Black Canyon National Park, you could hardly see the canyon because of snow caves. Um, my friend lives in Durango, and there's a there's been a huge wildfire burning near her home that still isn't contained. And it, it just 
hit me in a real visceral way because I love the state. I love its natural beauty, but I see what's happening, and it's very scary. Uh, do you have some thoughts on that, uh, David? Do, do you have some reaction? Well, my main thought is um, sort of the same point I made earlier um, about this horrible summer, which is to say I think the world is really waking up to the fact that climate change is not just a matter of coastlines and it's not just a matter of Arctic ice. It is something that is going to impact everyone on the planet, wherever they live. And um, with a few exceptions, you know, places in northern Canada and in Russia, those people will be negatively affected. Um, and the more greenhouse gases we burn, the warmer the planet gets, um, the more negatively they'll be affected. You know, go to go back to the media coverage. Uh, the pine bark uh, beetle is something uh, probably a lot of people here don't know much about. But I was looking into it, and it was—it's the largest uh, insect infestation in recorded history, in known history, and it is directly climate related. There's nothing other than climate that is changing the pine bark pine bark beetle and changing, putting it all over the place. And we really don't talk about it like that. That that you know, this is a Here's a very direct, solid, nothing but climate change thing, and it killed all these trees all over the all over the hemisphere. It's it's crazy. Well, on top of that, I think there's a whole category of um, climate threats through um, disease that we don't really talk about. I mean, um, the, the beetles are one thing, but it's it's another thing that ticks, which carry um, which carry Lyme disease, are now um, spreading much much farther than they used to. And if we fast forward a, a a couple of decades, it's likely that the sort of tropical zones where mosquitoes will carry um, tropical diseases will have expanded hundreds of mile, miles northward, exposing a much, much bigger proportion of the globe's population to what we used to think of as sort of quarantine diseases that were just local to parts of the equator. And that can be very, very scary. You know, Jerome and David, your scientific point is absolutely well taken. But I think what's happening this summer is somewhat different in terms of how the public perceives things. In the same way that the public cares more about polar bears that are at risk than snail darters, you know, because of climate change, our planet is roasting and smoldering with wildfires. People are seeing that visual image in place after place this summer. You know, what used to be extreme weather calamities in terms of wildfires and floods are now becoming increasingly more commonplace. And there's a visual there. People understand wildfires. They understand floods just in a more visceral, more direct way than they do um, you know, beetles that are uh, helping to destroy some of our forests. I'm not saying that's the right way for it to be, but there's a reason that people seem to gravitate more to caring about polar bears and snail darters. And in the same way, the floods, the wildfires, I think are really going to engage people at a much more visceral, direct level. And that's going to be an impetus for more action. What we have to do is get it past the, I'm watching the wildfire on the news. There's nothing we can do about it to here's what we need to do to step up and take action to make a difference. Uh, let's go to Paul. You're on WBEZ. Hi, guys. I want to introduce a very unsexy concept, which is um, <laughs> nuance and context. And what I mean by that is to have in your, your head at the same time the idea that someone like me can feel that 
we need to be more responsible and proactive as a culture and as a world about what we're doing to our environment. And at the same time, we need to consider the context of the history of this planet. And when your guest says, we have never seen, I want to understand whether you mean your family has never seen or two generations back has never seen or the world has never seen because the, the planet has experienced climatic changes that have been wild. And as recently as 10,000 years ago, which is a blip in the history of the earth, where I'm standing was under a half a foot of ice, a half of, I beg your pardon, a half a mile of ice. And further back in the history of the earth, it rained for a million years. So let's try to be able to hold both concepts in our minds at the same time and be able to speak about this with some degree of rationality. And I very much distrust the media coverage um, of this. And a perfect example of it was when your guest says to the scientist's comment, and I'm just paraphrasing, why don't you lighten up and just, just accept the fact that this is caused by climate change when the scientist is doing his job and is trying to say, we don't have the evidence that this particular event is caused by climate change, so we're going to tell you about it, and we know that there's more frequency here, but we, we need to be responsible about talking about it. So I would love to go on and, and talk with you guys for an hour, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop and I'll be very interested to hear your responses. Uh, Howard, I, don't think anybody here is, I don't think anybody here is saying lighten up. I think what everybody here is saying is there is indeed a consensus, a serious consensus among serious scientists that climate change is occurring and it's driven by predominantly human activity. And that means we need to do something about it. Um, and I don't think it's much more complicated than that at the gut level. In terms of 10,000 years ago, we are where we are today. And if what happened 10,000 or 100,000 years ago is that there were wildfires across what today is the United States and it wiped out where the fewer people were living and so forth, I don't think that's a risk that people are willing to tolerate today. David Wallace Wells, uh, do you have some thoughts there? On top of which, I, I would just add, um, we are now, the planet is now warmer than it's been at any point in its history when humans were walking on the earth. Um, so there's never been a time when humans were alive on this planet that it, when the planet was warmer than it is now. We have exited the entirely the climate window in which humans evolved, built their civilization, and um, arrived where we are today. So we are, in that sense, in unprecedented terrain. It's true that the planet has you know, taken some really dramatic um, turns climactically over its history, but many of those turns have wiped out um, the majority, in some cases, the overwhelming majority of all life on the planet. I don't think that it should be comforting to us to remember that. Um, we don't want to, you know, even if we would be one of, one of the species that survived, I don't think that we'd be happy living in a planet where 60 or 70 percent of um, all of the life that we knew had disappeared. And I say that as someone who's 
among climate people anyway, not especially concerned about um, animal life. I just think, you know, the the level of transformation that that would imply about the way the planet was working is far beyond what most humans would be willing to um, tolerate if they were given the choice. Howard, I think one of the things that's uh, frustrating about climate change is that we feel like we don't, we we can't make a difference. We can make a difference in our lives and we can buy our electric cars and become vegetarians and do things like that. But that really the policy is move, move so glacially and it's so hard to fight, um, you know, energy efficiencies with cars um, or if the president waves his hand and brings in a bunch of coal people. Um, what, what, what should people do? Well, there are a number of things that people can do. First of all, on the clean cars issue, this is a time to go to your senators, your representatives, and when the public comment period opens, go to EPA. Tell them, this is moving us in the wrong direction. We need to move forward and have the Midwest be a leader when it comes to technological innovation with cleaner cars. Not, let's not get left behind. Um, we have a website, ELPC, Edward Larry Peter Charlie.org, backslash clean cars. Uh, and that explains things you can do to take action. But here's how fast things are changing in a good way. Uh, all the utilities, Commonwealth Edison, they're having negative electricity demand because of energy efficiency. It's beginning to work. It's saving people money. It's creating jobs. How Same it- time, wind power has grown over the last 15 years to be about 35,000 megawatts in the Midwest. So we're making progress. We can make a difference. Howard Lerner is president and executive director of the Environmental Law Policy Center. Their website has lots of information on things you can do. And David Wallace-Wells is deputy editor for New York Magazine, and you should check out his writing on climate change there. Thank you both for joining us and talking about climate change and the weather. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia and its row with Canada. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. declined to get involved in the Saudi-Canada dispute yesterday. A State Department spokesman said both sides need to diplomatically resolve this together. The dispute started when Canada's foreign minister sent out a tweet saying it was gravely concerned about the arrest of political activists in Saudi Arabia and encouraging Riyadh to immediately release women's rights activists Samar Badawi and others. With me to talk about what's happening is Besma Momani. She's a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, and she was writing about this affair in The Globe and Mail, and her article was, Saudi Arabia's bold move has nothing to do with Canada. Thanks for joining us again. Good to talk with you. Likewise. Just to go over for people who may not be up to speed on this, the Saudis came out after this tweet And they took a bunch of actions against Canada. Some people are calling them sanctions against Canada. Could you explain what happened? Well, I mean, they went to the extreme. They uh, put out a tweet saying that no new business deals will be signed with Canada. That is now jeopardizing a great deal of 
of very important business deals. Uh, friends of mine who are in the business community are calling, saying that billions of dollars worth of deals and contracts that were just about to be concluded have now been cancelled. We saw them uh, basically recall 15,000 students who are here on a scholarship. There are 1,000 medical doctors receiving training here in Canada have been recalled as well. We saw them suspend all flights to and from Saudi Arabia. There were about three to four flights that come into Toronto, Saudi Airlines. They also, of course, expelled our ambassador within a 24-hour notice period. They are asking all of their economic investments to divest of all Canadian-owned stocks. Uh, that's uh, as of this morning. And frankly, the list just keeps piling on. You know, there's just no end in sight. They just really go to the extreme. And frankly, for us, this is absurd. But, you know, if anyone's been watching what's been happening in Saudi foreign policy, you'll see that they did the same to the Qataris. Qatar is a little peninsula stuck to Saudi Arabia. They're now under consideration of literally creating a channel to separate them physically. I mean, that's the kind of extreme actions they take for what is, in my opinion, very mild criticism of their human rights record. Does Canada have anything to do to get out of these sanctions with Saudi Arabia? Can they go back and say, fine, jail all the human rights people you want, jail anybody in in Saudi Arabia you please, and then this would all be lifted? Or is this just a perpetual uh, punishment? I mean, again, reading the uh, Saudi foreign policy of precedent here, and in terms of what they want, although I have not heard this, but I can tell you in my expert opinion, there's only one thing that they want, and that's the head of our foreign minister to be sacked. That is the kind of extreme positioning that they would want to make this go away, or frankly, for our prime minister to fly to Riyadh to kiss the hands of the king. That is simply politically suicide for any Canadian government to do. Not only would it lose the respect of our Canadian population, but frankly, of our international standing. So it's just, frankly, we're at an impasse. Nothing is going to uh, appease the Saudis, in my humble opinion. And so we just need to ride this out. What kind of things are they saying about Canada in Saudi Arabia? I don't watch much Saudi television, but I know you do. How does it come off? Well, you know, unfortunately, there's no shortage of now even translated and subtitled uh, Saudi talk shows out there that have now shown up online. And it's pretty vitriol. I mean, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Uh, Apparently, we have the highest suicide rate in the world. Apparently, we mistreat our women. Apparently, uh, this country has the worst prison population in the world. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, spewing facts that make no sense at all. Um, Comments yesterday from one political analyst on Saudi television. Again, these are state television shows that we uh, want to expel the indigenous people of our country, uh, much like the way that the Rohingya were treated in Myanmar. I mean, that's the kind of uh, language. And frankly, again, for those who followed what happened with Qatar, we saw the same thing. And, you know, the Qataris and Saudis have longstanding familial relationship and strong tribal ties and the way that they made them not just persona non gratis but i mean complete and utter you know dragging them through the mud is no surprise to anyone who's been watching saudi foreign policy of late but it really is frankly unbecoming and just quite low Um, you have no other word for it without resorting to that kind of language myself i'm talking with besma momani from the university of waterloo she wrote about this fracas in the globe and mail her articles saudi arabia's bold move has nothing to do with canada it sounds like it's got a lot to do with canada 
Well, no, I think we're just being made a case. We're just being, you know, basically uh, used to set an example to the international community. I mean, and look at it. It's created a deafening silence, right? No European power, frankly, the United States hasn't stood up for Canada. None of our typical Western allies would share our liberal values about democracy and minority rights and civil society have stood up. And why? Because they're also afraid of losing business deals with Saudi Arabia. So, frankly, it had a very positive effect for what they wanted to accomplish, which was create this chill internationally that people will stop criticizing their human rights record for the almighty dollar, and it's working. And just to underline what's happened with the U.S., Samar Badawi is a woman who was lauded by the State Department in 2012 as one of their international women of courage and was brought to the U.S. And uh, the pictures of her and uh, the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, and the First Lady were all over the papers. And the best the U.S. can do to stand up for this person is to say that they're going to ask the Saudis for more information about the arrests and urge them to respect due process. Well, and I think this really probably has less to do with Samar Badawi, but more to do with the American administration, current administration's loathed feelings about the previous administration. I mean, the fact that there is a picture with Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton probably did more harm to Samar Badawi in the eyes of the U.S. administration. And that's really just the unfortunate reality of your own domestic politics. But if you have values and you believe in the rights of all people, you would get over that, right? Um, I, I, I'm sure there are, are, are people of your listeners that are better attuned to the problems in American politics than I am. I mean, that's just, you know, the divisive nature, frankly, of what's going on in, uh, in, in the U.S., right? Right. The situation with the other countries, European countries, did you expect them to stand up for the rights of all people and the rights of this woman? We did. And again, it's not about this one woman. I really want to be clear that, you know, we don't want to make it about a single person because there are hundreds of people that are jailed in Saudi Arabia today that have done nothing more than work their entire lives as intellectuals, poets, journalists, you know, human rights activists who had worked to sort of remove the oppressive ban on women driving, the guardianship laws. I mean, anybody who was free thinking has been arrested in the past year and they're in the hundreds. So it's not about one person. It's about an overall policy approach. And of course, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince and really running the show, is really trying to make all reforms in Saudi Arabia about him. You know, he bestows the reforms at his pace when he wants to, and it's not about bottom-up civil society pressure for change. Uh, And so his attempt to control the narrative is really sort of the par excellence explanation for all things Saudi today. And I'm afraid that is not a healthy society. One that requires that kind of leadership is just unhealthy. So it's really, I think, broader than just one individual. And it's really important to keep that conversation broad. Do you think the king is having second thoughts about giving so much leeway to Mohammed bin Salman? Because his father recently came out and reversed his position on the peace plan that's brewing between the U.S. and Israel and Saudi Arabia. The the Saudis Mm -hmm. seem to be going along with it. And the king came out and said, we don't go along with that. Yeah. And this really is, I think, in my opinion, one of the things that precipitated this, because nothing that 
Mr. Freeland said is new. She's been on the record saying that before. There are plenty of tweets archived that you can find uh, that show that she said this many a times, as well as the foreign ministry, as have other governments. But why now? Well, one, Canada, you can make a case out of it. Two, Canada is not very big economically in terms of the bilateral relationship. So, you know, it's not much lost revenue for the Saudis. And third, I think there was an attempt to divert attention back to MBS's sort of nationalistic narrative. Um, And he's been very popular among a lot of Saudis for taking the country a hundred miles an hour when previous leaders went, you know, five miles an hour. But at the same time, uh, he had also, I think, probably overstepped his bounds a little bit. And King Salman, his father, indeed, reined him in just less than a week ago saying, you know, we are not going to support this uh, plan that Jared Kushner has uh, tried to reveal to the Israelis and Palestinians that, in fact, we are not going to support this. And that was a real rebuke from his father. And it was quite public in not just Saudi uh, circles, but, you know, just the regional media. I mean, people were like, wow, King Salman actually put his son in his place. So I think that there is some good old-fashioned machismo at work here where the crown prince wanted to say, you know what, I am powerful, I do run the shots in this country, and uh, enter our foreign minister, who is a woman, and I don't think that's a coincidence. And so this really just now plays to his base, his very hyper-nationalistic base, and I'm afraid he's back at it again. There is one aspect of Saudi-Canada relations that seems to have gone uninterrupted, and it's the arms deals between the uh, Saudis and Canada. What happened there? What does that say about this whole fracas if the arms deals keep going? Well, I'm not sure even the arms deals are going to keep going. I mean, it's a $15 billion deal, very controversial here, I should point out. But I think what we're going to see and what is expected now is that if this this $15 billion deal is over a number of years, and I suspect that what hasn't been paid for and what hasn't been shipped is going to be canceled. I think that's what many in the community here expect. Of course, Saudi Arabia is the largest uh, purchaser of arms in the world, and so uh, it will be difficult for Canadian companies, military companies, to find alternate buyers. But I think there are also a lot of people here in Canada who may be relieved because that's a deal that many people felt was not in keeping with our self-proclaimed feminist foreign policy. And you think that Canada would cancel that deal? No, I think the Saudis would cancel that deal. In fact, I'm certain they're going to cancel what has not been paid for and has not been received is going to be canceled. Why wouldn't the Canadians cancel it? Because it seems like this would be a chance to stick it back to, to the Saudis. The Canadian government's already gotten enough flack for that that's finally died down in that respect. And also, I think there's just enough uh, real upset in the business community here in Canada, especially those who have very big contracts with the Saudis. I mean, this would just be more pain for the the business community. So I don't think that they would go to that level. And not to mention, I think, in good old-fashioned Canadian manners, we're, we're just basically kind of trying to be polite about all this. So far, all of the moves have come from Saudi Arabia. We have been very cool-headed about things, saying we're just going to inquire some more and And, you know, there's been rumors that there's back-channel communications through the United Arab Emirates to try and see, you know, how could this be resolved. But, again, I don't think that uh, there's any value in in now kind of taking this to another another level. What does all this do to the reputation of Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau government? The U.S., Donald Trump seems to have, you know, acted patronizingly towards Justin Trudeau and seems to be fine with the Saudis doing the same thing. Uh, How does that play? 
I think it really depends on how the dust settles. Certainly, there are aspects of the business community that are upset. They're not always the most vocal because there is, I think, also a very popular political sentiment, particularly among centrist and progressive Canadians, that uh, what Canada did was the right thing. So, I mean, the country, I wouldn't say, is completely divided. Um, This follows somewhat neatly along political lines, political party lines. We have three political parties in Canada, at least three main ones, and the Conservative Party, which tends to be a bit more pro-business, you know, at this point probably takes about 30% of the vote. Uh, Many of those business people are upset. They do want some overture of Justin Trudeau to to go on and and say something or or fix this, so to speak, uh, and do feel that perhaps this normative type of foreign policy approach, the the self-proclaimed feminist one, is, you know, really kind of um, you know, a bit too much. Maybe it's too lofty goals at this time. And, you know, it's unrealistic, particularly when we're dealing with countries like China and um, and other countries in the world that are really large consumers for us. So I think there is criticism out there how this will shake out. Uh, we'll see. We have a general election next year. Um, I'm sure this will be a part of the criticism of the prime minister um, that he's kind of naive, maybe per, maybe a bit too of a lightweight on these political matters and certainly does get uh, much of the business community all riled up about how he doesn't know how to really negotiate the kind of deals that matter. Besma Momani is professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, and we've been talking about her article in The Globe and Mail, Saudi Arabia's bold move has nothing to do with Canada. Thanks for joining us and talking about the Saudi-Canada dispute. My pleasure. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about migration. There are more than 65 million people displaced worldwide. I'll talk with the author of a new book on Can We Solve the Migration Crisis? She argues for vigorous acknowledgement of our shared dependence on human mobility. Stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.